From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in tabulated Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are diagramming gameplay loops and art direction. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Let's start. Let's start. <laughs> let's start. It's a different emphasis. Let's say it differently. Let's start. Yeah. Let's start. I kind of liked it. Oh. So it's mixing things up a bit. I mean, you know, we say our names in every episode. And we it's, do. Yep. It's I a recall. lot of times, every time. Yeah. Uh, I too do that. <laughs> I know my name. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I try to like say it differently every time, but I think I've gotten into a habit of saying it pretty much the same at this point. Oh, yeah. And I'm a little disappointed in myself. I locked into one way of saying it, and yeah. then I was like, great. <laughs> what if we mixed it up? So, like, I said, I'm Stephen McGregor, or, like, he's Stephen McGregor. What if McGregor. we were all Stephen McGregor? What if, like, what if it, I would be like, Do there's all? already two other ones. <laughs> he's Stephen McGregor, and he makes nice games. I don't know and, that we <laughs> And then Stephen could say, he, he's Mark LaCroix, and he makes nice games. And yeah. Mark could say, she's Ellen Burns Johnson, and she makes nice games. Yeah. Oh, I get That's it. a great way for us, and only us, to have fun with this. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners can skip to the next episode when that starts. <laughs> also, I don't know if I brought this up on the show before. I'm pretty sure I have. But I'm the third Stephen McGregor in my family. Right. Um, my dad and my grandpa, um, you know, first and second. Not respectively, I guess, because I said that out of order. Wait, wait. Um, you carried the- yep, that, that checks out. <laughs> uh, so, you got to diagram it. Right. So there can't be any more Stephen McGregors in this in the clubhouse because I, I, I won't allow it. I'm Stephen McGregor the fourth, and I make nice No. <laughs> I'm not carrying on the name. We've had that conversation. Me and my family actually had that conversation again over the weekend. Yeah. Oh, so what well, we need is we need your dad and grandpa here to fill in for Ellen and I. <laughs> That'd be super cool. No. Do a, ni- do a nice games jam, the three of you. I'm Stephen McGregor. I would, I would pay to listen to that episode. Oh, gosh. And my We'd son makes nice games. turn the mic down really low, though. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or just put you in different rooms. No, my dad would be like, he would, actually, it'd be kind of funny. We, we can't actually do it. Warm it up to it. <laughs> yep, yep. No, we, we well, my, my grandpa's passed away, unfortunately. Oh, sorry. But um, my, uh, we can't really do, uh, I, I, it would be obnoxious because I, my dad, like, actually complains about how loud I get sometimes. <laughs> you know? So Loudly, I imagine. Yeah, and he gets loud too, but he won't admit that he gets loud. Right. So he'd be like, so we'll just talk at regular. I would pay to hear that. I'm yeah, just saying. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe listen. Get your brother on board. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe listen to McGregor title fight. Enough, uh... <laughs> Put that on Patreon. When you say title fight, that makes me want to do it. Ha ha! <sighs> you know how to push that button. You really do. <laughs> All right. So important news. Yeah. Other than that, uh, Kirby check in. Kirby, yes. Um, Stephen, so you and I both completed Kirby. Hundred percent did it. Yes, yes, yes. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> What, there's like just, there's something left over that I didn't do. I forget what it was. You didn't do the last arena, I think. Right, I didn't do the arena stuff. Yeah, which yeah. feels that's the extra content. I'm not yeah. counting that. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if we'll get to 100, but Eric and I are still plugging away through it and having a good time. Um, yeah, it's cute. Still mm-hmm. cute. It's still, <laughs> you know, cute. it's it's. I've been watching speedruns. I time. saw you earlier today Ooh. doing that, and it's it's fascinating. The way that there are some of the bugs, but also it's I ended up seeing like some extras, like or not extras, what's the word? Secrets. That's yeah. That like I didn't catch while I was running through it. Hmm. Um, and there's like a bunch of them. Yeah. In most Kirby games, there's like a Howl room where they spell out the Howl and like the star box yeah. or whatever. Um, there's like three Howl areas in this. Right. Howl Laboratories, the yes. the Nintendo company that makes the game. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Um, and there's like three in this game, and I was I mean I didn't find any of them when I played through it, mm-hmm. so uh, I went back actually and 
spotted them again. Oh, that's cool. You know, yeah, I feel like I found all the secret rooms because it was it was what was being tracked. Right. But uh, but I guess it's not unfathomable that there were just other secrets that are not part of the gameplay tracking. Yeah, and apparently there are a bunch. Cool. Um, so I'm kind of thinking about like going back through it and seeing if I can find more secrets. Hmm. Let me ask you this. One of the things I noticed, speaking of HAL Laboratories, yeah. is that they have a, a logo at the top of the the titles. And maybe it's because I haven't played any other Kirby games mm. lately. But like, is that... I always hear of HAL as like, I never see them, their logo anywhere. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, that's the alarm that I have to take out the trash. Okay. Oh. <laughs> we'll pause Let's the pause show. the show. <laughs> All right, back on topic. Yes. To answer your question... um. I don't, there it doesn't seem to be much significance to that. I don't really know what the icon has anything to do with. It doesn't have anything to do with Kirby games. No, I know, but I mean, I just, I've never seen it in a game before. And I know oh. I've played HAL games before. Yeah. So. No, I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with their games either. I guess I what I'm asking is, do you see it on other Kirby games? Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, oh okay. yes, yes, yes. That, that's, that. a, that's the thing that struck me is my mistake. What that must mean is that I just probably have not actually played a lot of Hell games ah. because I, that, I was like, oh, they're putting their logo on there now, like as if it was a new thing. Oh, I misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. No, they they have them on like I feel like all the Kirby games. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I guess the one I, the one I'm familiar with, Epic Yarn, was maybe not developed by them. Oh, it was. I don't think so. Maybe it was like help. They maybe got help or something. Or I forgot. Put, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I didn't play Epic Yarn, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't play Epic Yarn? I did not. So it was not Kirby enough for you? Uh, I think, actually, that was kind of my logic. It's oh. super charming. It, it's oh, absolutely. They, they did a remake for, I think, for Wii U. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was a Wii game, right? So, yeah. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I played like a demo or something of it, and I didn't get into it enough to revisit it. Shame. Uh-huh. Shame. <laughs> I don't mean to detract on it. I just never yeah. went back to it. Yeah. I just don't know what a world looks like where I've played a Kirby game you haven't. <laughs> it looks like this one. <laughs> Bizarre. Reality just shifted. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I got a little meta news before we get into it. Yeah. Um, we haven't had a roundtable episode for a while, so mm-hmm. we were talking like, what's new with us exactly? And I think the thing that's, for me, for in my working life, um, we've been... Now that Dream Settler was announced and we sort of completed all our tasks we needed to get that... Yeah done yeah um we're like okay now what's the, the next chapter of the development look like when do what's our next milestones we, you know maybe think about what our release date might be mm-hmm. um and we put together a production uh schedule um that uh we presented to the publisher and we chatted back and forth and made some compromises and moved mm-hmm. some things around and explained yeah. the harsh reality of d- development <laughs> and what actually will be done by when but it went the the meeting went really well and i think we ended up with something really good so we have a month by month list of tasks a list of things that need to be finished sweet which is new for the project but it couldn't exist before now yeah and i think that's something that a lot of times when you're planning a large project mm-hmm. You start thinking about, well, I want to I want to do this. Like, I have the design document here. So I'm going to tackle this part, then this part, then this part. And they're a little fuzzy at the edges, but whatever. But you're three months into something, and it's all out the window by then. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're so early, and you're inspired by different things. And especially if you have a small, nimble team, you can start really taking advantage of progress you're making in one area to branch off and do an adjacent area, even though you didn't have that plan for wait till way later. Right, right. Um, and you, do, you don't realize what your blockers are early on. And so we had a lot of that. Um, and the way Dream Southern was being made is we need to make it as a platform before we make content for it. Mm. And so um, it was a long time before we started, where anything was more than just ideas written down in terms of uh, narrative and what we, we call the cases or submissions in the game. Yeah. Um, a lot of that is, you think by now, we've been working on it for over a year, that a lot of that would be in a lot of beta place. And some of it is, but mostly as example structures. But now, we finally now 
have uh, the, the sort of platform built. Basically, we built, we made an operating system. Yeah. Um, we have an API that we use for our fake operating system. That's it's actually totally quite wild. robust. Yeah. I cannot wait to give talks on this because it's <laughs> it's overkill in some ways, but it's also going to make the next couple of months really good. And so yeah. we now have a lot more confidence to decide like what's going to get done in May, what's going to get done in June, what's going to get done in July. And that is so motivating yeah. because now it feels like the cost of deviating off course is really high. Whereas previously, the opportunity loss from not deviating when something struck you was too high. Mm. And so that's a good place to be because there's just way less confusion going forward. And we don't have to worry as much about checking in all the time to see, all right, who's doing what when and, and who needs what from who. We'll see how long it lasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I suspect we may... We, I mean, we say this to ourselves, but like it's almost half joking, half serious. Like we're, maybe we won't hit these deadlines. Maybe we'll move a little past them. We're giving ourselves that that ability. Yeah. But I feel really confident with with that. I feel that what I'm working on now is exactly what I'm supposed to be working on, and it feels great. Awesome. I'm really excited That's about cool. it. That's and that was always kind of true, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what it was I was supposed to be working on until I started working on it in yeah. that period. Yeah. It was, and it was absolutely the right thing for that period of the game yeah. um but now it's just we have a checklist it's amazing yeah mm-hmm. it's so no, exciting just get chugging along That's oh good. it's so good yeah checklist i'm pretty excited so good that's funny because that actually links right into my meta mm-hmm. but i don't want to jump the shark no jump the gun jump the shark gun okay and and talk about <laughs> checklists before you're done talking about june settler ellen would jump jump a shark <laughs> yeah it's not just it's also shark. video games related so it's got to have a shark and a gun in it and something uh-huh. shark gun shark there's mm-hmm. got to be a shark gun in Gungeon, right? Like, Sure, probably. All right, sweet. Okay, we'll have to look it up. Put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to jump the gun if you're not done talking about Dreams. No, I'm babbling at this point, so okay. take us to your item. Um, Checklists are awesome, and I'm using them all over my life right now. Yeah? We're playing Kirby. I'm not really playing a lot of other games right now, and that feels like somewhat guilt-inducing. Mm-hmm. I am reading a book, um, which Ellen. I've been trying to read <laughs> on and off. Really? A book? A book. <laughs> <laughs> it's 2022, oh. Ellen. It's with paper and everything. Wow. I know. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. Lame. Guilty verdict. Just kidding. No, it's, but I make it cool because I'm gamifying it. So I have like all these different apps for all the different things I need to do. I have like a, a tracker for my plants. I have a tracker for my workouts. I have a tracker for my, this is like the mental health thing I'm trying to do today. Yeah. I have a tracker for my book. Mm-hmm. Like. Everything's giving me badges and points that mean nothing, and it's great. I'm not, not going to lie. That sounds like the opposite of um, fun, but okay. No. It's... You can't hear it in her voice. This is the most happy she's ever oh, been. Oh, no. She sounds super exciting, but uh, the, the content of the words drains my energy. Oh, like like the, the mental health and books and exercise parts? Uh, well, there's that. And, and also just in, in, getting, in having a checklist and doing it and having mm-hmm. to do it every week and it just seeing all of the work you have to do every week seems... Well, here, and that's the interesting thing is, right, because like these are things that I already want to do. So the right. motivation already exists. Yeah. So the, the the gamification part, for me at least, comes in when it's just like a little like little happy reward for the okay. thing that you wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. That's fair. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. I don't mean to detract <laughs> from the enjoyment I can see you're getting. Yeah. I just, I don't think. You just don't want to be caught taking it seriously. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do it myself, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no one's making, like, 
So I'm going to take your phone and I'm going to make you install it. No. I'm going to make you exercise. And- no. Well, there is something to be said about like what artificial tricks work that you can play on yourself. Yeah. 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 And it, it you know takes all kinds. Yeah. Um, there are certain things like that I do respond to and then others I just really don't. Yeah. yeah. And I actually don't have a good idea as to what they are. So like I'm not great at planning those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fumbling around most of the time. Um, but it's great that you found like – yeah. The, the the things that like make it work for you. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I've, I've I've learned this lesson about myself before. I um, yeah. I think the last time I was like on a get in shape and get your stuff together kick, um, I really got deep into the game. Um, it's a little gamification app called Habitica. Mm-hmm. Oh and yeah. It's all like built around RPG mechanics. I should probably go back to it and see how, how what's changed since the last time I played it. But um, that felt really good because whenever I got to cross a task off my list. I got to hit the boss for a really big chunk, and that's always satisfying. Yeah. So, a little, it's a little bit of that. So that's that's kind of where I'm putting my my energy right now is mm-hmm. into the book and into pressing a lot of beeps and boops on my apps. Cool. cool. What's the book called? Educating Intuition, which I believe I've been reading for like a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a pretty dense. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but I'm more than halfway through it. Nice. And now I have an app for it, so I'm totally gonna finish it. Nice. Yep. Yeah, by the next recording session uh, or the session after that. Okay, maybe don't make promises, but okay. <laughs> End of June. You did that with Metro, right? And uh, it worked out great. <laughs> I didn't have an app for tracking Metro. That's yeah, fair. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Metroid. If she had a way to gamify Metroid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if only there was a way to track your progress in a video game. Exactly. Then she'd be all, you know, could have made that, gotten that yeah, done sooner. Alas. Yeah. In, in fairness, not to be. I did eventually finish. It's Metroid true. Dread. It's true. It's true. I, I started and finished Metroid Dread. I started it after I started this book and I finished Metroid Dread before I finished this <laughs> oh, book. Okay. So I am this, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this book. Yeah, you gotta yeah, that's that's the final boss. <laughs> and then I'll have a we'll talk about it because it's yeah. really, really cool. Like there's a lot of I mean, part of the reason that's taking me so long to finish this book is because I'm highlighting like every page. I'm yeah. like, like, oh that's a really good quip, and that's a really good quip, and that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I had an exp- the last book I had an experience like that with was Capital in the 21st Century. It's this huge tome uh, of like just economic history, and I don't know why I started reading it, but I really liked it. And I have halfway through, I was like, "This should be 30 podcasts." Why? <laughs> and I gave up on it. I'm so disappointed in myself. Just listen to Freakonomics or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, that actually sounds. I mean, that's the thing is, it sounds really interesting, but sometimes it's really hard to read. I mean, it takes a lot of brain power. Yeah, if, it it um it was one of those dry books that I I respect very much, but also, uh, you know, I am human, so yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, like I don't want it to da- like uh, make it uh, entertaining for me right. at the cost of its value as a as a tome. But you know, now I know why people do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's also tough when like I mean, and we're totally going on a little bit of a tangent here at the beginning of the show, but whatever. It's been a while since we've had a roundtable. True. Um, but like we're not academics, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I get paid to know things that I can read about. If that makes sense, but I don't get paid to read, right? Which is unfair. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. So like having to, if I want to, if I want to read something and it needs to take some focus time, I have to set aside focus time. Yeah, and then I also have to push myself to make progress through it, even though my brain might be getting distracted by yeah. something. So mm-hmm. anyway, I made progress. I read a bunch this morning for a whole thirty minutes. Nice, very yeah. good, well done. Thank you. He's uh, oh, trying to transition. Nope, nope, I was I know, gonna. I'm ready. You can do it. Okay. Okay. Did the app okay. 
create a diagram g- gameplay loop. And he fumbles at the finish line. <laughs> womp womp. Okay. No. <laughs> no. No. No, I didn't know the app did Well, not. you're going to have to define it for us in this topic. Hello. Yeah. Oh, good save. Good save. Okay. Um, Ellen's look of skepticism. We'll give it to you. Okay, cool. You get a point, Steve. You take those. He needs this, Ellen. You he know, needs it. You can get the W. That's one more point than both of you. See, he episode. was just saying that arbitrary random points don't matter. No, no, they no. Really they really do. Checklists don't why, matter. Why, was I, do why matter. was I on your side this whole time? <laughs> okay. All right. So, gameplay loops. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> It's a it's like an abstraction for something that you want in your game system. Right. Um mm-hmm. and I've been doing you know, I was doing some reading on it leading up to the podcast and had to do some diagramming of gameplay loops recently. Um and I think it's you know, it serves a lot of different purposes, but um but I think it's a it's a really helpful way of both clarifying your thinking around a part of your game design, um, communicating it to other people and just making and like validating that certain things make sense. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a gameplay loop. We're talking about like something that like parts steps of your game that feed into themselves and like repeat over and over throughout your game. Yeah. So th- I was thinking about like we could you know just start by thinking about Glom right. Um, and I haven't done this yet, so I'm doing it live. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> we can cut it out if I say something dumb. Um, Why yeah. have we ever done that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Listen to the Patreon. <laughs> um, so, like, okay, so you 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 draw your cards, mm-hmm. and you that would be like one step is draw deal the cards. Yes. And then the next step would be like draft a sentence, yep. and then the third step would be like compare or read aloud, and then the fourth step would be like identify the winner or something like that. Yeah. Right. So it's not that much different than just laying out the rules. But it's from a different perspective. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's um, when you're talking about the rules, right? You're directing the players to do what they need to do to execute the game. Right. Literal tasks. Yeah. Literal tasks. For like a tabletop game, right? You have to spell it out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a video game, then you're using the language of video games usually to spell it out. Like hopefully you're not putting a prompt at the beginning of your game that says run left or run right or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you use the you use the environment to help nudge people to the right, and then when they walk right, then they're like, "Oh yeah, I walked right and I did stuff." Yeah. Um. But that that kind of loop is still there, right? So, in like a platformer, it's like Widget Satchel, for instance, like you run and or you make move through the environment, you dodge enemies, you collect stuff, and you get gadget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what you do the next time. And you keep moving on to the next and you just do that over and over again. Yep. Right. It's there are things you can do over and over, but I think it seems like what I'm hearing, and correct mm-hmm. me if I'm, if I'm wrong, is that to be a loop in this definition is that there needs to be some sort of like cycle some ending to the cycle and re- renewal. Yep. So like in the case of Widget Satchel, it's you you it's the reason you do the things along the way are to reach the fabricator room, which is the sort of end of that cycle. Yep. yep. And you could you can Cut and slice it in different ways. There are small loops within loops, I imagine. Mm-hmm, for sure. We'll get to that. Um, yeah. And then I think there are different structures too. Like uh, there's this <laughs> Daniel Cook, and I, I will have some some resources from him in the show notes, 
talked about like arcs. Mm-hmm. So it's not just always a loop. Sometimes you might look at a different structure. And I think that's really interesting. There's more thinking I have to do about this because um, Kurt Vonnegut, the author, did a master's thesis on the shape of stories. Mm. And I feel like there's something really interesting that I want to compare and contrast and tease out between yeah. like this, the shape of games and the shape of stories. Yeah. But I'm not there yet. That's not what this podcast is going to be about. I Wow, I've never connected those two things, but Vonnegut stories do have a kind of repetition, a sort of a, a constant itch scratching that happens as you read a book mm-hmm. the, where you get, you get sort of reminded of the theme and that, uh, yeah, that is sort of interesting. I mean, it might be reading too much into it. Maybe, but, maybe not, but I think, I think when he was writing, like he had a sense of what, where on like the shape of the story he was writing. Mm-hmm. And so that means that you're getting a sense of velocity and momentum like yeah, yeah. In, in the emotional experience of the story. And I think that also, I mean, that's also built into your game, right? Yeah. At least it should be. If you don't have emotional velocity in your game, then your game is probably boring. <laughs> right. And then your game should not be boring. That's like rule number one. Yeah. Um. So I think there are, anyway, there's, there's something more I want to think about when it comes to like shape of stories versus mm-hmm. gameplay diagrams but um Ooh, i have a metaphor so do, it's do like it. when i love building ikea things it's very relaxing you know. and i like instructions mm-hmm. and so but one of the the most enjoyable part of an ikea project is when you have to do the same thing eight times yes <laughs> yep and what because you, get... <laughs> well, like... you, you 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 can you feel you get good at it yeah. okay in a way and oh, so mastery okay it's mm-hmm. not it's not really mastery so yeah. much as routine and familiarity oh okay it's sure. it's you you remove the ignorance you have of what comes next mm-hmm. yeah oh okay. and that's what i really like about gotcha. that gotcha yeah. um, that makes sense to me though yeah well i don't know why i thought of that <laughs> well it's interesting though because i think that relates to it because i think that you know we talk about it as a loop but it's not like tenant or whatever where you're just reliving the same thing over and yeah. over again yeah like there is supposed to be variation and or if you're not really experiencing variation in terms of what's happening in the game you are experiencing you um variation in terms of the gameplay because your skills are advancing yes so like i've played you know play the first 20 levels of thoth a bazillion times because i kept dying and that's fine because that's what you're supposed to do in that game right you're supposed to die and try again and my experience with each loop through those first 20 levels or through the game overall every loop was different than the previous one even though like the way that the enemies were setting setting up and the way that i was you know i was still in my little like square that was all the same, but my yeah. experience of that was different with every time around the loop because right. I got better and better at shooting little shapes and dodging the shapes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, and you got better at a thing not by learning something new, but by doing something you already know. Yep, yep. But I also think that like you can take your gameplay loop and you can, like every time you go around it, rather than think of it as like a racetrack that you're getting better at, you can think of it almost like a spiral or like a like a oh. parking ramp. Yeah. yeah. If if you imagine yourself Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill, no matter how good at it you become, it will not be fun. Right. Well, that's really not really what I was thinking of. I was thinking more like, like if you think of like the widget satchel, right? You get mm-hmm. to the end of your loop, right? You run, you dodge enemies or you whack them. You know, you navigate through the enemies and you collect widgets and then you spend your widgets. Yeah. And if that your loop ends at spend widgets, then you start your next level at the beginning of the next loop. Except for now you have a different tool. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're yeah. like on the next level of the parking ramp. So you're still the shape that you're that you're following is still that same circle. Uh, so but you've not, added like a very vari- a variable to it. So it's not necessarily what I was sort of positing, which mm-hmm. is that yeah, you're gonna do this a hundred times, but once you're on once you've done it sixty times, you know you're sixty percent of the way there. Mm-hmm. It's more that you do it again in new context, in some new variety. Right. Without 
necessarily so it becomes novel but not uh, disorienting yeah yeah well and i think that um and this this kind of goes to more of like how you use your gameplay loop is you got to think about what motivates what's going to motivate the player to do the loop again yeah yeah right so you can you can lean on different types of motivation to create an impetus to do the loop again and that whatever motivation you're leaning on is going to create a different game right so like with widget satchel, you get to the end of your loop and you spend your widgets and you get your cool thing. And now you have like a the novelty is what's driving you forward. You're going yeah. to a new area. You got a new tool, but you're going to take the same like behavioral loop again. You're going through yeah. the same steps again. Yep. But now you have more options. Right. And you're it's going to be a different area. So right. like the novelty and the exploration is driving you to do the loop again. Yeah, this is interesting framing it in this way. I because like it changes how you perceive the gameplay loop. Oftentimes when I think of a gameplay loop. Um, I'm thinking of it, yeah, literally in the actions that the player is doing mm -hmm. um, and what is the core flow um, that the player will experience through, during the game. Um, but thinking of it as, as a, a series of gameplay loops and the player's motivation evolving or changing over the course of each iteration of that gameplay loop, yeah, I guess it affects the, the player's experience in a way that can be parsable for the designer. Yeah, I think that's yeah, that's a cool way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, that's the thing that's sort of hitting is like it's the parsability of it mm -hmm. is the and that's kind of what you're getting at is actually diagramming these things out. Yeah, it's for like sure. it's one thing because I think probably everyone who's listening to this is like, yeah, this all is kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you you might even think you could have described it this way before hearing it. Yeah, but I think it's it is kind of like you do need sometimes need it distilled this way. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at something that's really well designed, and oftentimes like one of the one of the i feel like one of the emotional reactions i have to something that has been designed incredibly well is like well duh like <laughs> exactly yeah you know like you look at like the first iphone and you're like well duh yeah like yeah. but no it's not like anyone could have come up with that like yeah it it might have given you like a well yeah kind of moment but like that doesn't necessarily mean that i mean i don't know i hope that i hope that i'm the last person to have these insights about ga gameplay loops because that means you guys are all great you figured it out. Um, but most I think a lot of times practicing game designers don't always describe or systematize their insights. Yeah. Right? And so it's like you may have these insights, but they're buried under something. It's that, it's that parsability. I think that's yeah. important. Yeah. To, to be able to then, I mean, that's it's vital if you want to teach it too. Yeah. Well, right. it's one of, the, one of the reasons why I think people have such a great, I mean, there's so much, such great benefit to um, be had when you give a talk. Because yeah, it yeah. forces you to distill that. And right, right. You do some learning on your way to giving the talk. Right. Mm -hmm. You distill your learning when you have to explain it. Mm -hmm. When you have to explain it to someone else, you have to then you distill what you've intuitively learned. Your system your system one mm -hmm. in the Hogarth educating intuition parlance. Your system one knows it, but you haven't been able to do it with your system two, which is like your explicit knowledge that you can explain. I went through this recently because in my current game design work. Gosh, it feels cool to say that. Um, <laughs> I'm still in like a consultant role, right? So like we're building a game for a client and that game has to have roots in these like trainable skills that are certain. They have like a certification that they point people towards. And so it needs to be rooted in the skills that they are validating on the certification exam. Mm -hmm. The gameplay loop needs to match up with that, or at least I need to be able to explain how it does. And then the rewards and like the incentives, like the motivations behind the player engaging with these different parts of the game also needs to go back to things that make sense for a professional role, right? So it can't be like, 
I like to dunk on people. Like you you can't like lean into the killer motivations or like the black hat gamification style motivations. You've got to lean into things like you want like an epic meaning or you want, um, you know, you want to feel a sense of progression or a sense of accomplishment or ownership. Like these, these um, I'm, I'm referencing Yukai Chow's um, actionable gamification system, which we'll link in the show notes as well. But Mm -hmm. like it all had to go back to that and be something I could explain to an executive (laughs) (laughs) and it was a really good exercise. I had a lot of coaching through it by people who are more experienced designers on the team, but it it was really, really, really valuable. And um, so, yeah, I had to design out this core loop and then I had to, I I wrote like another section on incentives and like motivations, what's actually driving people to go through this. And I wrote down like, and for me, it just worked really intuitively to use the actionable gamification octalysis drivers and so I listed those out, like, these are the ones that we're leaning on. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, wait a second, there's actually another loop within the loop. So I called it a moment loop in the document that I put together. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's right. Whatever. But I, had, in my subsequent reading, have found that there are some, you know, there's some articles that talk about different levels of loops as well. Yeah. So here's one from GameAnalytics.com. And we will link it in the show notes. I've got so many links for you guys. <laughs> um And they say, okay, so take a roguelike. The core gameplay loop might resemble something like walk, attack, collect. And that's what you're doing from moment to moment. But at the same time, the users have higher level goals that build upon the lower level ones. So the higher level game loop might be enter a new room, kill all the enemies, get rewards. And I haven't really thought of a good physical metaphor for that because I think like the game loop of like and the metaphor of the park car parking ramp like spiraling up really makes sense to me but when i'm talking about loops within loops i'm not really sure how to how to grok that quite yet other than just diagramming it out (laughs) (laughs) so i did i like i drew the first loop and i'm like okay this is what they do here then they do this and they do this and then when you zoom in a little bit then you see there's another loop that they're doing from like action to action when you're like talking about clicking or whatever they're doing with their controller or whatever input mechanism they have like what are they clicking and why and what do they click you know what happens mm-hmm. on like the gesture by gesture level and i called yeah. that the moment loop and the moment loop was nested within the larger gameplay loop ah. so i kind of showed like they go around here and then they go here and then they go around here and then they go here and if you go if you google you know gameplay loops let me rephrase. If you use whatever search engine you prefer to look up gameplay loops <laughs> mm-hmm. and you look up from images, you can see like all these different kinds of structures and it's yeah. really, really neat. Like there's a lot of variability. It's not just like one little circle. There's, it gets pretty complicated if you want yeah. it to. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of the way that people um, make charts out of stories mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how you need to, like you don't necessarily, like the chart is helpful as you're making it but it's actually more instructive after you've made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're not, you're, otherwise you're going to be too slavish to the, whatever draw, drawing it is and however it's mapped because there are so many different ways to do it that if you just pick one structure and then just do what you're doing, it's not, I guess that makes it kind of annoying because it's like hard to, it's almost like you have to do the work and then check to see if it, Maps out okay? I think so, but I think that actually gets to what my next bullet point is, mm. um, which is why do you diagram a loop, right? So the use case that I just shared was I needed to diagram a loop because I needed to communicate something we had already designed to someone else. Yeah. Ideally, I think we would have done that diagramming like earlier on in the discovery or like early design process because I think that diagramming your loop, your gameplay loop or loops can help you like scope your 
scope different parts of the project. So like you have a you have a core gameplay loop and you're like, oh, well, that's what you need to prototype then, right? Like you have the different steps. And if all the steps you're looking at your diagram and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand all of this at a single glance on the level that I'm trying to analyze it on. And all these different pieces of it make sense to me intuitively. And when I share them with the other members of my team, it makes sense to them intuitively. I feel like that's a good, that's a good like rough, like finger in the wind indication that you've got something good. Whereas if you share it and they're like, I don't understand what this means, like that doesn't make sense to me yet, then you can you can clarify your thinking a little bit more and, and, and get yourself moving in a better direction. But then I think, you know, it helps you scope out the work that you have to do, not just for your like your prototype, but like overall, what, per, you know, how big do you want to get? Yeah. How many times do you want your players to loop around the parking ramp? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's three times, well, that's three levels, perhaps. You know, if it's enough to fill up 50 hours worth, then gosh, they're going to be doing that loop. You're going to need a lot of different loops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? You can look at your loop and be like, well, this is going to take, you know, it's just going to take people this much time to get through this. You know, it's like you'll have a good, a better intuitive sense of how big your game is. It becomes be. a unit of measurement. Can, yeah. I think it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because and it, you can translate it to time, but it becomes its own measure because it, I think that's very difficult for people who make games that are not you know, it's five levels. Okay, well, it's going to be as long as five levels take. But if you're designing it, like, how long should we do this? What's what's the right length of a game? Mm-hmm. What's the right length of a zone? Or what's the right size of an area? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Diagramming those loops and then seeing how many of those would make sense. Because if you just say, eh, it should, should take like 15 minutes to get through this section. Mm-hmm. Like, that's actually not the li- like quite the unit of measurement that makes sense to yeah. see if it's satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like when people say, like, oh, that movie was really long, but it felt like it went by real quick. Mm-hmm. Or that movie was really short, but oh, I, it was so such a slog. Yeah. Like, I think that it's hard to know that about a, a game experience. And yeah. so this does provide a, a, a measure for that. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, <laughs> this is something Eric really likes to talk about different things you can do to spend your, like, different leisure activities in terms of, like, dollars per hour of entertainment. Yeah. Which is such an Eric way of thinking of things. <laughs> <laughs> do you love that man? Right. He's such, a, he's such an economist, like, economist nerd. Yeah. Um, but, it is kind of a way to think because I don't actually it, – it doesn't boil down to that always, right? Because, yeah. like, you can spend a lot of money to have three hours of excellent entertainment time if you're going to, like, a an escape room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And do you, like – I don't know. Right. <laughs> Minutes is one measure right. of, like, of fun versus no fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then there's others, other measures that give the experience value that you can then translate to what – how does that relate to the dollar value? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I really feel like you're, you know, if you're designing a game, you're the one who has like this intuitive vision, this vision of what it needs to be. And you have that inside of you and you are trying to communicate it to people who are going to fund it for you or are going to help you build it or whatever. And sometimes like you just need to, it doesn't need to be all like extremely specific all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that I wanted to ask about was like how detailed should your diagram be? It doesn't necessarily need to map like this is gonna this action is gonna take the player about thirty seconds, and this yeah. like, this action is gonna take yeah. the player about three minutes. Like, right. you know, use it to get your next level of detail. But your gameplay diagram, your loop diagram, is not your game. Yeah, like it's mm-hmm. not your rules. Your loop diagram is not your game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about it's there to help you and your team get the game like the code right or the rules right, so that the game that you feel inside can exist in the real world where others can feel right. It too. And I think that's a valuable tool to, uh, to make it useful for different types of players as well. Because like when you were describing it, how you, you know, 
Uh, I mean, you were describing it as, as though this was not the way to do it, and obviously that's the case. Thinking that a player will get through this level in five minutes is not accurate because players play games differently. Mm-hmm. Some players have different skill levels. Some players have different motivation and interest levels. Um, and so, like, you know, they might take ten minutes to go through a level where you're the ideal player you were thinking of would take three minutes. Right, you're really thinking about the median player. Exactly. Or like, let's say level three of a game always takes almost every player three minutes to get through. Yeah. But if it was an auto-scroller that took three minutes, everybody would hate it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right, yeah. right, right. So yeah. thinking about the loop in that way allows you to expand or contract the, the size of the loop for each player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can also, I think, again, it's a communication tool, right? Yes. Like, yeah. you can point to the gameplay loop and be like, well, what we're seeing in playtesting is that people are spending a lot of time here and they're getting a little bored. So maybe what we need to do is dial back this part of it. Yep. And, yeah. and you know, it's a it's a way for you to like, communicate. All other measurements say that this section should be as uh, feature-filled and as dense as this section. But we've noticed that players, because of the loops that they use to get through these, mm-hmm. either get tired by this point or are left wanting more so we can rebalance those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, as a communication tool, it really helps when you're working, when you're done with like product owners, stakeholders, funders, yes. publishers, when they say like, listen, we can't, we have to cut level five. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, but here's why that will wreck the whole game, yeah. right? And, you know, uh, so it's a ta- it's tactical in a sense. But if you really believe it and you have the communication tool to express that mm-hmm. uh, without forcing someone to play both versions, mm-hmm. yeah. the version that's cut and the version that's not, yeah. Yeah. then I think that is can be really helpful. It can also tell you when it is safe to cut things, yeah. right? Or safe to scale back or, oh, this is actually – we did so, – we broke our backs doing all this work on this, but it looks like we need to make it twice as much. Yeah. And like, because everyone doesn't, nobody wants to do that anymore, right? Because you put all this time into it. Mm -hmm. But then once you map it out and with playtesting and with sort of the on paper playtesting in that sense of getting it all sort of mapped out and in that, in that language, you can make more, I wouldn't call them objective decisions, but it's more information than you would have had just by going for, did we clear the Trello board are we bored of working on this part? <laughs> and did we run out of funds before we have to move on? Yeah. Like those are all things that have to go in the equation. Yeah. Um, but they end up, sometimes they just become all the only data you have. Right. To, to mm-hmm. move forward. Mm-hmm. So I get in closing, doer loop drawings and they're useful for communication to others. They're also useful as like a compass to yourself. You can like, just like your day, you know, it's part of your game design documentation, I guess. Yeah. I, as far as tools, you can use to make your game diagram, obviously Miro, because I basically can't get through an episode without mentioning Miro, the same <laughs> way that, that Mark can't get through an episode without mentioning Star Trek, and so on and so forth. But there's also some other cool stuff out there, like Loopy looks really cute. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all about making loops. Okay. And then there's this tool called machinations.io, um, and I'm just going to put it in the Slack really quick because I want you guys to take a look at it mm-hmm. really, really fast. This is positioned as a tool for game economies. Yeah. Predict game economies and systems. Okay. And, that, uh, you know, famously, game economies are things that use the similar kind of tools are really hard to balance yeah. without tons and tons of real-world data. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So there's something in there, too. I don't know if this would really help you do, like, a small gameplay loop, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at this. I'm oh. looking at this video. There are loops there. There's loops. Oh, this is I thought yeah. that Stephen would have that reaction. Yeah. It is interesting because it's it does seem to be it's marketed as for a certain use case. Look at all the little number tweaks. Yeah, <laughs> they're tweaking so many numbers. It's like spreadsheets in space or something. Mm. Oh no, that's that's Eve online. Oh. 
this is this is this is good yeah. stuff. It is also important, I think, not to be carried away with over quantifying things. For sure, right? that's true. That's probably a risk. I mean, my guess is it's probably not as big a risk as under quantifying things for most developers. Mm. But there's definitely a risk on the other end too. Yeah, where you feel like it's like we've put it all down on paper, we've mapped it all out. That is the truth. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's you have to be sort of open to. Uh, mapping what you know and cataloging what you don't. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't, you know, you are on the horizon with your game design ship and you're looking ahead and you're using that what you see to diagram your gameplay loop, but you don't know what's over the horizon. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait till your ship gets there. Right. And and then diagram, you know, then figure out the next thing. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, these tools are meant to help you get player emotions to work, right? And you can't, Unfortunately, even though I've tracked, you cannot track player emotions through numbers alone. <laughs> He's so sad, you guys. <laughs> I've tried. Lessons from Steven. I've yeah. Tried. Yep. Sometimes it's an art form and mm-hmm. and that's you just have to bow to that fact. Yeah. I agree with that ninety-eight point three percent. Okay, so I'm hijacking this call to action in the middle of the show. Yeah. Because Ellen mentioned that I always talk about Star Trek, but I hadn't yet in this episode. Dang it. There was a new Star Trek, and it's really good. Dang it. I guess. Is that the call to action? I guess. (laughs) Watch Star Trek. That's the call. All right, I'm done. Let's talk about what we're supposed to talk about. Right, 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 right. Okay. Meow. (laughs) Meow. I think, Ellen, are you just going to do that? Meow. Okay. Oh, boy. Okay. So, um, listeners, uh, we we did a nice games jam. And I uh, made the noises that cats make. Meow! <laughs> Very frequently. You may have heard, and you may have enjoyed a nice little compilation at the end of that episode yes. of many Stevens meows. Yeah. And you'd be like, ha, oh, that's great. They edited together all the meows. No. Meow. <laughs> it wasn't all of them. <laughs> if you're on our Patreon, patreon.com slash club, you would be able to listen to all of the noises I make that cats make also. I'm trying to avoid saying the word because I did it enough during this episode. Yeah. And if you want that content, you got to get on our Patreon. Yeah, it's uh, the one-stop shop for nonsense that is too nonsensical to put on the feed. Yes. Uh, which includes a, a super cut of Steven's meows. Uh-huh. It includes some bonus content from the 200th episode. Yeah. It includes a bunch of us playing our old Nice Games Jam games. Mm-hmm. It includes full raw audio and outtakes from our GDC interviews. Yes. Um, and it includes hours and hours of our working sessions uh, when we worked on Roboston during the 2020 hiatus, I think. Yeah. It's just a ton of content. A whole lot of stuff. Um, that is, doesn't really quite fit the format of the program, but is more of uh, what we do um, and is sometimes silly. It's sometimes deeper. It's sometimes yeah. just longer and more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it's exclusive to Patreon, yes. and so in order to get your hands on it, you got to go to patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. Wow. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, so my topic is art direction. Okay. I feel like I occasionally get into the the softer sciences mm. uh, here on the program, and art direction is one of those things that is both very specific, yeah, and also very um, ephemeral, ethereal, sure. right? Yeah. Mm. Um, and I know I think I, I think I did a topic on color theory a while ago, you which did. is much mm-hmm. more uh, you know uh, more of a facet of this. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit of a broader view in, in that vein. And I'm thinking about it now because it's something we're working on with Dream Settlers sure. is we have, it's a sequel, so it needs to be an evolution, but it also has its own direct inspirations that are historical, conceptual, and, you know, and, and so we have to decide what are the rules that we put upon ourselves when making the visuals for the game. Oh. And it's, and for a game like ours, which is very, um, has lots of, lots of things to click and lots of widgets and lots yeah. of interactivity. Yeah. We have to think about like, what are the rules of our visual world mm-hmm. and that is all really all art direction is and so i wanted to just do a brief talk of like where i'm thinking about for dream settler right now before i get into the sort of subtopics here so you can kind of think you can think back as to how i why i think the things I want, i'm going to talk about are important yeah so with dream settler it's a game that starts in 2003 and it's meant to replicate that era of the internet. So if you're not familiar, Hypnospace Outlaw, the game this is a sequel to, is a internet simulator game or a desktop operating system simulator game, which is its whole genre now. Mm. And that game was really steeped in uh, the 90s, the late 90s, the Y2K particularly. And it was evocative of that era in computing history. And so a lot of the visual design was inspired by that. And in a way that was... I think if you actually go back and look at things from that era, you would actually find quite a vast gulf between what Hypnospace Outlaw looks like and what was what the things in Hypnospace that are replicated, what those things were replicated from. Like, yeah. And the reason is, is because a lot of it was about that early internet history, the sort yeah. of like those, those really 16-color uh, looping GIFs that were on every web page, <laughs> the sort of the, the pre-GeoCities internet, like, mm-hmm. re, you know, that kind of thing. Really old stuff. Yeah, and a lot of that was brought into the the in, the entire look of the game. Okay. And so it was not meant to be a perfect recreation and that's right. so the art direction was basically inspired by a lot of those things but it wasn't mimicry. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm a big admirer of that and so now that I have a big hand in shaping the art direction on the sequel, it's very important to me that it maintains that balance as an honor to the first game. Yeah. But what that also means is it can't look like the first game. Right. It has to it has to kind of start fresh in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that's been a bit of a challenge for us because we kind of know what people want and what they like, yeah. Like now, yeah. Um, and what they're asking for, which is an interesting conundrum to be in that right. I've never been in before. <laughs> it's like people will be let down by some decisions we make, yeah. Which is very weird, mm. very unfamiliar mm. feeling to me. But it needs to be an evolution for hypnospace, both in terms of like the internet era of the early two thousands, but also narratively. It's a it's a competing product to the the operating system from Hypnospace. So there's oh, there's yeah, lots funny. of there's further justifications for why things are slightly different. And says what does this mean? Does the company the fictional company that makes this operating system, how does it stand out as a differentiator from the product from the first game? 
And so there's lots of narrative components that go into the art direction. Mm -hmm. And one thing you'll, you'll, people will describe Hypnospace Outlaw as is a pixel art game. Um, uh, uh, Jay Tholen, the creator of the Hypnospace universe, you know, he is an expert pixel artist. And that informed a lot of the direction of the first game, of, of course. Um, but also it, it, because it was extremely low resolution, it, it, it looked very pixely. And we wanted to do something similar in terms of have that sort of richness of pixel art. But the resolution for for Dream Settler is like four times bigger. Right. So it has it just ha looks different. Yeah. And so we had to adjust how we made assets and how things worked sort of snapped together and how they interacted with each other and how mm -hmm. buttons worked and just every little thing was sort of lessons learned. So there was a lot of it like it had to feel like it was a sequel. Yeah. Like it had to have a, this lineage, but also had to do all the things that a brand new thing has to do. And so having that balance has been sort of interesting. So that's a background as to why some of these things I'm gonna talk about are important. And I th hopefully it'll make sense to you as I go through them. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing you wanna do is you gotta pick a direction. So yes. I think there's a lot, because I am a visual artist and a programmer, I think I sometimes take this for granted that those things can relate to each other. Oh, that, sure. Okay. And, and as a designer as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I mean, Steven, you've been on game jams with me. It's very hard for me to do dev art. Yeah. Because I'm thinking too much about that stuff early on. Yeah. And what that is, is that is 100% not productive. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'll make a case for it being the right way to do it. Like it's sort of in an ideal sense. Okay. Maybe you shouldn't be producing a lot of assets because you're going to have to throw them away and remake them. Right. Yeah. That's the not productive part. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to understand where you're going in that direction as you move every other piece of the game along the field. Yeah. I mean, I've preached it before, that holistic design. Yeah. And so when you need to pick a direction, I mean, where does that come from, right? So it comes to the inspirations. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, if you're trying to work on it this way and not just, I made a thing and then I'll, I'll put my art style on it after the fact, you kind of have even less to start out with. Yeah. Because a lot of times if you're working on a game, it, it can inspire the art as you go. Yeah. And that's, that is productive, <laughs> right? But I think it's important that also what that can do is that can constrain you, and sometimes that's good, but also it can constrain you in ways that you have no control over. Oh, sure. And so you have to decide, am I going to lean into this? So it, it, it should be this way because it's the, it's the easiest way to do it based on these other non-art direction decisions we've made. Yeah. And because that's the case, should I be excited about that, that I'm trapped in that decision and then lean into it? Or should I just be trapped by that decision and move to the next decision? Mm. And that happens, I think, a lot. Yeah. People make things a certain way because it makes sense to, and then, but it's not the direction they wanted to do. And so they, you know, things fight each other. Yeah. yeah. You see, indie games have, see this a lot. And I think this is a product of not enough time, not enough money. Just like every problem with indie games has nothing to do with developers not being good enough. Yeah. Like if you see a game that is bad in some way, it's because it's very much 99% because of those logistical real world yeah. reasons. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes those things, ha those logistical things come up mm -hmm. because developers don't have the experience or the expertise to be able to recognize how they can escape those traps. Mm -hmm. Yeah in the constrained time and budgets and, yep. and resources they have. Yeah. But it is almost always because of that. Mm -hmm. It's not because they made a ba bad call for the color they picked. Yeah. It's because the decision they were faced with was they came to that decision in an unideal way. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's my pitch for, um, I mean, it's kind of my pitch for concept art in a sense, which is not something we do a lot in indie games. Interesting. In indie games? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I guess that is true because you got to work fast right we have a sort of a prototype first model yes as the subgenre of game development yeah. I, I think hmm. uh, because it's practical it's productive and it has led to really good 
outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I think now the other side of that is where you go heavy on the concept art. Yeah. And this is like the other end of AAA gets this, where you spend all this pre-production time. Yeah. I think that is sort of the opposite problem, where you then have nothing but that stuff, and then you work on the... And then, and a lot of times those departments are siloed, which is its own problem. Yes. But then when you start to actually build a thing, you realize that you visually designed a lot of things that are don't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, but you're still attached to them as part of the core design. Yes. And then they end up vestigially part of a, yes. of a project. Yes. I don't, I don't think y'all hearing him. Mark's <laughs> preaching right now. I don't need to listen. Okay, yeah. anyway. So, I mean. <laughs> I said vestigial and I definitely thought of like some little crappy tiny wing. Well, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it is that. Yeah. Where? Yeah. But I think, um, I mean, this isn't actually that big of an insight is that as all as with everything, moderation in, yes. all, in all things, mm-hmm. right? So I think when you are picking your direction, when you're deciding what it's going to be, you kind of have to decide for yourself, am I, am I making a game where that is important? Mm-hmm. Or am I making a game where this is one of the tasks I have to do? Yeah. And I don't think it's bad mm-hmm. if that's the case, right? Mm-hmm. Like as, as much as I am a preacher of like, be interested in every part, Yeah. I don't think... I think it's a bad idea to tell a developer, like, you know, maybe you're not that interested in the music of the game. And so your your work on design and your 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 development and your workflows are not going to care as much about how the how the audio landscape fits in. Yeah. That's okay. Mm. But you do have to know that about yourself. Yeah. So that when you so that the, what you end up doing in those areas that you're not focusing on as much, get the attention they need. No more and no less. Yeah, okay. Right? Yep. And so if you're the type of person like me who just wants to, you know, put all the sliders to max mm. in terms of caring about the things. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's his own special kind of hell. But um, <laughs> that's fine. But I'm not advocating that as the way to do it. Okay. I think it um, – but, but art direction is one of those levers. Sure. And I yep. think it can be really easy to let everything else dictate the art rather than let the art dictate other things, especially if you care about those other things. Right, like if you want your if you want your character to move like a cartoon, yeah, then maybe your game should run at thirty fps. Mm-hmm. Maybe it should run at twelve fps. Yeah, I maybe mean, that's and you know what that means that there's gameplay uh, considerations you have to yeah, take into account. Yeah, for that. if you want your game to be super fast and fluid, one hundred and twenty hertz, mm-hmm. run on the best gaming monitors, yeah. and look like anime. Yeah, like I mean. You can't do that. Like you, you <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah. You got to decide within limitations. What you have now, that's something new. Yes, and you can do that, yes. but it's going to feel like a product of like two unresolved, yeah. you know, like concepts that don't fit right, together. Right, right, right. You need yeah. to find a way to make those things fit together if you care about both of those things. Mm. Yes, right. And so that sort of takes me to inspiration. So it's like, how, what do you, how do you come up with this sort of stuff? So mm-hmm. the first thing I'll say is my big hot take for the topic, which is do not use other games, particularly do not use one other game as your inspiration for your art direction. Okay. Don't say, I want it. I, I want a pixel art game that feels like X. I, I don't think you should say, you know, I want it to be a cross between this and that. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of okay if that's where you start, yeah. but I think you shouldn't be making decisions based on that. That's my hot take. I think that's the one sort of like, oh, that's the rule I will say, is if you're okay. trying to come up with like, what should this look like? I would say, don't make it look like this game plus this game. Yeah. I think sure because... It's not that you literally can't do that or yeah. that you can't get a good out from from, from that. Yeah. I just think that like it's um you know we had a we had a whole episode about inspirations with Salvier Nelson mm-hmm. talking about how it's important for game designers to be inspired by things other than games. Yes. And I think in art direction never more so, I think. Mm-hmm. Because you get kind of this calcification of style. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of pixel art roguelikes and a lot of uh, sort of I mean, 
there's a bunch of games that look like Among Us now. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those are for economic reasons. <laughs> but also yeah. people do like something they like and they want to make something like that. Yes. And yeah, but that, the, so, so the, the motivations for why you're doing that are to emulate another game. Yes. And not because it makes sense for the game you're trying to make. Right. And because what yeah. that's going to do is that's going to influence your game design. Right. It's going to influence the, the way, you know, how your game is structured, how yeah. it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to like, well, I, it reminds me so much of this and it looks that way, but I'm going to design it in a totally different way. Uh-huh. And then now, but that inspiration is so worn on its sleeve that it's going to confuse players. Yeah. It goes back to like your inspirations for both Hypnospace Outlaw and, and Dream Settler mm-hmm. um, in that. I mean, it's not quite the same thing because I guess it's not related to a, a game per se, but you wanted to emulate the ideas of this this time period. Right. Yeah. And in the in the you know, the, the UI and the experience that people had in that time period. But your reasoning for emulating that was not because you thought that Microsoft uh, looked cool back then or whatever. <laughs> right, it's right, because right. you wanted to emulate that feeling. Yes. And that feeling and the look of that is part of that feeling. It's interesting that you bring it back to that because yes. this is different from saying, I want this specific thing to remind people of this other specific thing. Yes. I think that's fine. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. great artists steal, they say. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's when you think very broadly, because we talk about design pillars all the time mm-hmm. for game design. It's like, mm-hmm. it, I made a design decision. I'm going to hold it up against my design pillar, see if it fits. Yeah. If it doesn't fit, great idea, but it, I've already made the decision and it doesn't, I don't feel it matches, it's going to go. Yes. Or I'm going to change it. Or I'm going to adapt my design pillar because I like this too much. Yes. Those are all acceptable options. Right. If your design pillar is that I kind of want it to feel like look or feel and look like Spelunky, mm-hmm. then like that is you are not being creative. Yeah. Um, and I think there's no reasoning behind that. Right. Right. Yeah. I like this game. Right. And that comes down to the, the other way to spin this hot take, which is a lot more positive, mm. which is that everything you do must be motivated. Yeah. There we go. It must yeah. have a reason. Now, mm. the reason can be you can backfill a reason. Mm. This is one of the things I used to tell people when I worked in film all the time is people would talk about like, oh, they only made that movie because of that location was available so they could do that cool scene in there. It's like, fine. But then they backported that justification and found a way to motivate an an actual motivation to get to that scene. Yeah. Maybe the real world logistical reason why you're making a game that, you know, has a lot of red in it is because you want to show it at an installation with an old CRT where red bleeds on a monitor. Yeah. Like that is a silly kind of reason that's not I mean, it's it's aesthetic, yeah. but it's hard to justify that necessarily. But yeah. especially inside the game, right? Why is that? Other than for that particular reason, right. but you can certainly backfill your motivations. You mm-hmm. can find like in-universe reasons for for the choices you make, yeah. or basically, you want to be able to look back at all the choices you made in the the, the way uh, how you want it to look. And you want there to be, a, it does not have to be a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be a reason. Yeah. And I think that's the difference that I think people don't get all the time is they don't want to have to, because it does sound oppressive to like put meaning into everything. Yeah. I don't think there needs to be meaning to anything in, in, in times that, but it does have to be motivated in that sense. Yes. Um, motivated is a term that comes, in, the way I'm using it comes from uh, video editing. So when you see somebody walk uh, past a camera and just as the, just their left arm is visible on cameras are walking, you cut to the uh, another angle where they are then entering frame the other side. That's called a motivated cut oh. because basically the, the edit happens naturally in a place that a viewer might expect their attention to change from one looking at one thing to looking at another thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's motivated by something that happens in the scene, yeah. not because like a fast cut is cool yeah. or because the actor was doing something really interesting at the end of this take, because that you might be motivated to show that for other reasons. Mm. But that's the that's the way I'm using this term is that it. it should be motivated by something. It should have it should fulfill some goal you have mm-hmm. essentially. 
so that's my foot on ground kind of standing on soapbox. Okay. Like this is how it should work, I suppose. Yeah. But you know, you can be, when I say don't be influenced by games, a lot of that is really just because there's so much else to be influenced by. And, yeah, that, yeah. and I don't mean movies. I, I mean like specific art movements, I'm talking like historical eras, things like scale. Yeah. Like I want my game to feel like objects have such a varying contrast of scale. Mm -hmm. That's a thing you can have inspiration for. Or you can say, I want a game where everything is exactly the same size. And so as things move around, movement becomes puzzly because yeah. everything slots. You know, like those can motivate your art style, right? And of course, that also extends to gameplay and, yeah. and spatial like relationships and right, mechanics. Right, right. Mm -hmm. That's again the sort of holistic pitch that I'm making. But it can also be color. It's like I want this game to be. Uh, I want this game to kind of have like a Game Boy style, right? Well, that's is that does that break that rule? It's kind of an arbitrary thing. Yeah, but. I mean, it's just a set of colors. It's yeah. not, I don't want it to look like Super Mario Land. Right, yeah, right? yeah. And that's, so that's, again, to reiterate, like, my, my big rule is it's self-arbitrary, yeah. right? Um, you can decide to be influenced by a particular game if you backfill that motivation. And it really can be anything. Like, I want a game that moves quickly. Yeah. I want a game that where, where, where the animation feels smooth and not choppy. I want it to feel like the, the characters are blurring across the screen all the time. There's just, there's always fast motion. Right. And, and, and I mean, just, I mean, looking at, reading specifically the hot take saying yeah. do not use another game as your prime inspiration ever yes it, i think the core part of that is the prime inspiration like you don't want to make a game look to look like spelunky if the game looks like spelunky there's a reasoning for it yeah there's a motivation right right and if the reason you made that decision was not interesting yeah then you know find your way there some other way because it's going to motivate all the other decisions you make in the yeah, game yeah right. um you're gonna like well we need to make power-ups well if all i'm inspired by is that it looks like this other thing then i'm not making these choices really yeah. right or i'm making choices that break that inspiration and people are going to notice mm -hmm. and that's the thing that that, that they like design pillars it all sort of had, does have to go together yes and it's important that you have to align your direction so that, you know, it's not just about is it going to be 2D or 3D? Is it going to be really colorful or desaturated? Like those are all really interesting choices you want to make and things that you'll want to stick to. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you want to know how that relates to your narrative. Like it's you know we're going to make a black and white game because it's going to be a noir thriller. Yeah, I mean that's really really crude in terms of a connection between two things. Yeah, but it's great. Like uh -huh. that works, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could say I want to make a, like a noir kind of uh, game, but I want it to be really bright outside in the sun. Yeah. Like that's the that's the twist I want to put on it. So my art direction is motivated by that irony. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things and then well how does that relate to the story? Yeah. Is the story also going to have that irony built into it right. or is it not going to? Is it going to is the is it going to be sort of contained in a certain way or is it going to affect everything else? So yeah. there's nothing about these things that require you to make the same decisions in these different categories, but they should relate to each other. Yes. And that relation should be interesting to players. Yeah. It doesn't have to be obvious to players. But I think it should be there for them to find. And if you didn't come up with a reason why, yeah, then there's nothing to find. Or worse, there's something to find and you didn't decide. Yeah. So th this is interesting. I I want to bring up um, Cuphead specifically yeah. with this because like the you know the art direction it, you know it's based off of you know old timey cartoons. Yeah. And they have the fancy bouncing around. <laughs> yep. This I'm making motions. Y'all can't see it. He's and, nailing it. It's yeah, I'm nailing it. Perfect. Um, um, and I think that a lot of the game and I, I we talked about this before. I think that a lot of the game design and the reason why there's all these boss fights and stuff is because that that animation style lends itself to that kind of gameplay yeah yeah um because like you want fancy animations and you want you know big characters that can do all of these fancy things and that lends up it ends up being like they can also make fancy attacks they can have cool uh you know they can have cool flashy particles and things like that that all track with that style of gameplay and 
um, the player is motivated to see all those fun animations to continue to, you know, press themselves against this wall that's, you know, this challenge uh, right. of it, beating the bosses. I certainly would have quit Cuphead a lot sooner yeah. if it wasn't interesting to look at. Right, exactly. Right. The one knock I'll, I'll have on Cuphead is sure. that the frame rate is too high. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, but it has to be because of the gameplay considerations, right. right? And that's a case where you need to identify those incongruities mm-hmm. and get comfortable with them. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you have to solve them all the time. Yeah. Like, I mean, perfect world, solve them. Yeah. Right? <laughs> sure. Like, I mean, there's an argument to be made that, like, Cuphead is two novel concepts kind of married together imperfectly that's fair but like games are allowed to do that too Uh uh-huh but Mm -hmm. i think it's important and i would certainly venture a guess that the developers of cuphead were fully aware of that yeah and that's important too so it's not there isn't as much of a should exactly it's always just due consideration yeah right and if you find those disconnects you have to decide well is this worth it because or how can i minimize it in certain ways how can i make uh, you know like well i'm gonna have characters move in physics at you know, 120 hertz, but I'm going to update their flipbook animation 30 times a second. So how is that going to look? Am I going to move the collider, but I'm going to keep the sprite in the same place? Yeah. You know, there's lots of ways you can get around that so that it can, a game like that can still feel. So these are all the questions that I'm just spinning out from this example. But that can be true of, you know, all sorts of things. You're thinking about like, I want like a 3D shooter or a, 3D, a third person shooter but you don't want it to be like skill based, and so well, you know, it's hard to ne- nev- it's hard to aim a third person gun, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why auto aim is so common in third person games. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a mechanical consideration. But if you want your visual style to have like to, to like, oh, I want the camera to move in a certain way to have a relationship to the player visually. Well, how does that impact the play style? And how do I make considerations to the, in terms of like raising this type of gameplay versus reducing this type of gameplay, or mm-hmm. adapting or confounding? The, the gameplay from a player expectation. Yeah. There's just, I mean, any type of combination will spur these kinds of questions that you have. Right. And I think it's important to, I mean, just broadly, it, just what I said at top is like, it's not just a coat of paint you add to a thing. Yeah. And I'm saying this like it's a, like no one's ever heard it, but I think most people <laughs> understand that yeah. fact. Yeah. But actually putting that into practice is a lot harder than people probably know. Yeah. I think you outlined a really good, like a good framework and philosophy to adapt for someone like me who hasn't done art direction before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work I work pretty regularly with people who have that title yeah. and do a really good job, but I've never really thought about, I've never thought about their work in that way. I definitely kind of recognize art direction as something that someone needs to do to make sure that everything's consistent. But also sometimes like knowing when it's okay not to be consistent. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and especially in the work that you do, there are considerations that do rise above that sort of holistic perfectness. You can right. only use the brand approved palette. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yes. So a lot of, I mean. It's all blue. I, when I worked in advertising, I had this problem all the time mm-hmm. where designers would come up with this really interesting thing and be like, yes, but when we put the logo on it, it's going to look bad. And they're like, I know, but it's so good that that will make up for it. Like, no, no, like, yeah, no. it won't always. Uh-huh. And, you know, I mean, sometimes you give in to that really, you know, excited art director. And sometimes you give in to the brand guidelines. And, like, just like any other thing, it's it has – you match it up. You ma- try to make sure that it fits together as best you can. And when it can't, you acknowledge that failure. <laughs> you don't you don't try to hide it or ignore it, yeah. right? Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have little fail- failures along the way. I just think one of the advantages we have as indie developers, I mean, we are burdened with – Lack of everything. <laughs> yes. And what we get in return for that, which doesn't quite pay for itself, but is <laughs> the fact that it is easier for us to put these things together. Right. We don't, if we don't have a team, if your team is 12 and not 1200, mm-hmm. 
you will have an easier time unsiloing these dis- disciplines. Yes. Even if you don't have one person working cross-discipline. Right. Right? And I think it's a shame when indie devs don't take advantage of that freedom that they have mm-hmm. because it's kind of all we have. Yeah, it's the, yeah, the freedom it's the, part. It's the one advantage we've got mm-hmm. is the fact that we can stitch these things together, that we have a better opportunity. And so it's it's incumbent on us, I think, to think more deeply about taking that advantage. Yeah, agreed. There's another show in there to have to talk about expertise versus generalist yeah. approach, but that's a different show. Yeah. And I, I I mean, my experience really informs a lot of my feelings about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying my best not to make that influence. Like, I don't want anyone to take my advice and say, I should do it like Mark does it. Yeah. I suspect there's a little bit of that and I can't avoid it. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that it's an approach that can work in a, a, multiple configurations. I, I, I will say as a person who does not want to be a generalist and doesn't like getting skills that I don't have interest in. Um, I think this makes a lot of sense to think about these kinds of things early on um, to consider art direction. I'm not an artist mm-hmm. in terms of drawing, but I uh, want to make those considerations or work with someone to make those considerations ahead of time because like, it really does inform a lot of the decisions that get made. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and like you create, you might, you might create your game through the lens of multiple, dis, you know, multiple discrete disciplines, but that's not how your gamer, how your player consumes it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So mm-hmm. it's got to fit. It's got to fit for them because yeah. the game is for them. Yeah. Can we say power to the players, or is that like trademarked still? <laughs> I think that's probably too embarrassing to say. It's yeah, definitely maybe. cut that for sure. <laughs> that's our show. For show notes and links on today's topics, go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on Twitter at Nice Games Club, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and unimportant code you leave in. I um, actually retweeted that one. Dale didn't do it, but Dale retweets other cool things, so you should still check it out. <laughs> Explaining how the sausage is made over here. <laughs> I don't retweet most of the things. Dale does most of them. I just did that one. I'm proud of it. Um, <laughs> we like hearing from you, so tweet back or email us, contact at NiceGames.Club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash NiceGamesClub. If you want to keep things more casual, just stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. Next week, we'll be looking at a preview blurb here. <laughs> do, do we know what we're doing next week? Interview. Yes, we're doing an interview. <laughs> I just forgot to fill it in on the script. Um, <laughs> well, tune in regardless. Yes. It'll be great. But that's it for this week. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. I knew I was forgetting something. You did a good job. Thanks. I don't know if people can hear. That's really, I don't think so. It's a full-on cuckoo clock. It's a full-on mm. obnoxious cuckoo clock because if you don't take out the trash the night before, I mean, then they don't pick up your draft. That's fair. <laughs> That's true. That makes sense. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.